course. Daniel chapter 3, I won't read the whole thing to us. Pick me up in verse 16 of Daniel chapter 3. If you're new with us, uh, we are in a series called God at Work, uh, looking at Daniel. Uh, he's not, um, he hadn't gone to seminary. He's not full-time vocational minister. He works in the government right now of Babylon, and uh, we learn a lot of what it looks like to be just a person who loves God, who kills it in the marketplace, and who has an incredible, incredible witness and testimony for the glory of God. And God wants to do the same for most of us who are in this room who work out in the marketplace. With that in mind, pick me up in verse 16. It says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that. They're not following God for the benefits package. He's able. The, 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 the issue is not whether or not he's able, it's is, is that his will in this situation? And so they said, regardless of the outcome, King, our, our minds are made up. This ain't even a discussion. We won't compromise our integrity. Then verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed. Boy, I see my mama, boy. Your mom ever get so mad the expression on her face changed? Against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, hey, didn't we cast in three bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound. One translation says loosed and walking about, watch it now, in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. I want to preach this morning from the subject standing in Babylon. Standing in Babylon. We've talked about reaching Babylon. We've talked about cultivating Babylon. Today, I want to talk about standing in Babylon. Uh, many of us have heard the name Eric Little. Eric Little was a Jesus-loving man, a man of great biblical conviction who ran in the 1924 Paris Olympic Games. His specialty was the 100 meters. 
Leading up to the games, Eric Little was a bit disheartened that when they came out with the schedule, he saw that his event was scheduled to be run on Sunday, what he also considered to be the Sabbath. By the way, parenthetically, for more on this story, of course, many of you have seen the great movie, Chariots of Fire. Eric Little, being a, a great man of faith, a great man of conviction, he just had this standing thing to honor the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments, and he just had this long-standing practice, I will never compete on the Sabbath. So he sent word back to the board that I'm sorry, I know you've scheduled this event, but I cannot run on the Sabbath. This is what the Word of God teaches. This is my deep, abiding conviction. The board dug its heels in. They tried to convince him that he would be shaming his king and his country, to which he responded that he, he runs for a greater king of a greater country. Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth they go. There's a conflict. At the end of the day, the board finally acquiesced. They changed the schedules around. Eric Little was able to compete. But I tell you that story just to let you in on a reality that most of you, of you all know experientially. And that is to be a Christian and work in Babylon, work in the world, means at moments we will be pulled into conflict. If there's one word I want you to write down in the margins of your Bible in Daniel chapter 3 or to write down in your notes app, I want you to write down the word conflict. It is the word that canvases the whole story. Here are three God-fearing individuals, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and of course the great scholarly debate that they've been debating for years is where is Daniel? Some people say he's away on a business trip. Other people say he's in the king's palace because that's what he was doing. We don't know, but we can only speak to what his three friends are doing. Three godly men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they understand, they get the invitation that the king is hosting this company-wide gala where people from all over the then-known world are going to gather on the plain of Dura I'm going to talk about that in just a few moments, and that the king has kind of hired this DJ, and when this DJ plays this music, I'm just contemporizing the text, work with me now, when the band strikes up, there's going to be this large image made completely of gold that everybody must now bow to and pay homage to. Can't you see the angst on their faces? Can't you see the sense of um, concern that they have? There's conflict. It's exactly what many of us in this room have experienced and felt. You're working at your company, you're on that business trip, you're going out of town, you've got a long day of meetings, those meetings wind up, and then some of your colleagues invite you to go out afterwards, and you kind of know what that entails, what that means, and immediately it, there's this brief moment where you're cast into the conflict. Or maybe you just came on at the company and, and you've kind of picked up on that the culture, maybe not company-wide, but the culture in your offices, it's kind of okay to fudge on the expense reports. There's this huge area of gray that you're kind of having to navigate. 
And it's just become kind of acceptable to, to kind of say you were doing one thing when in reality you were doing the other so that you could expense this. And for a few brief moments, you're, you're pulled into the conflict. Or maybe that conflict isn't necessarily with company policy, it's just with various individuals on your jobs. I'll get back to this in just a few moments, but, but maybe you feel like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, that there are some mighty men who are trying to throw you into the fire. Some coworkers that maybe you work with who are doing everything that they can to kind of make life miserable for you. And there's, there's conflict. Or, or maybe it's, it's that water cooler talk with some of your colleagues and it's now just kind of drifted into a gossipy vein and, and, and you've got a split decision to make uh, to either participate and entertain the gossip or will you refuse to bow like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What we need, and I've been telling you this all series long, we don't need judgmental people in the name of Jesus. We've got plenty of those. We need men and women of integrity. Daniels and Daniels. There's just an air about them that when they step into the scene, there's just something different. No, not a haughtiness. No, not an arrogance. But there's this otherworldly vibe about you. Part of the reason why we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is just a valuable lesson. Had they, had they bowed, we would not be preaching about them. Had they bowed and gone with the crowd, Daniel 3 would not have been written. But the reason why we're carving out 35-ish minutes or so to talk about them is because when the pressure mounted, their knees stayed strong. They stood. If you want to cement your legacy for Christ, don't bow in Babylon. If you want to maintain your integrity, Stand while everyone is bowing. This is exactly what Martin Luther King Jr. got to in his classic book, Strength to Love. He writes, the ultimate measure of a man, of course, we can say a person, is not where he or she stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where they stand at times of challenge and controversy. Why does God allow conflict at your workplace? Because those obstacles are opportunities to display the glory of God. Will you stand while everyone else is bowing? We come now to our text, and the first thing we see is the struggle in Babylon. We've been careful to parse out all throughout this series that Babylon is one of the most oft-mentioned cities in all of Scripture. It's mentioned over 90 times, I think 92 times to be exact, many times in the New Testament. In fact, many times in which it is mentioned in the New Testament, it's used figuratively, hear it now, to speak of the world. God is clear, I've called you, Daniel, I've called you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as exiles to step into Babylon. Why? Because God doesn't just care about Jews. He cares about the world. So God actually tells them in Jeremiah 29, I want you to build houses and live in them. 
I actually want you to pray for the prosperity of the city, which is Babylon, because in Babylon's peace and prosperity, you'll find yours. Yeah, we don't need to demonize the bay. We need to see ourselves as people who've been called here to represent Jesus Christ. We're all missionaries together. A missionary is not somebody who hops on a plane and goes overseas, overseas to India. In fact, one of my problems with global missions is people will hop on a plane and do stuff in a foreign country they won't even do on their own streets. So we need to see the bay as our mission field. Now things get cranked up in Daniel chapter 3. Remember, they've gathered at the plain of Dura. I wish I had time to chase this. I really don't. But the plain of Dura, you need to understand it in the Bible. The first time it's mentioned is in Genesis chapter 11 when they build the Tower of Babel. It is a place that is synonymous with idolatry. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, we're going to host a company-wide gala, and uh, I want everybody from all over the then-known world, I want you to gather right here at the plain of Dura. The text says he's constructed an image that is about a little over 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. And the text tells us that it is made completely of gold. Don't miss that detail. This is important because scholars connect Daniel chapter 3 with Daniel chapter 2. What happens in Daniel chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in that dream he sees an image, and the head of that image was gold, but the rest of the body was made of different materials. Daniel now steps in and interprets, here's what that image means, Uh, the head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar, and Babylon, uh, but your kingdom will not last forever. There will be other kingdoms that will come and that will reign in your place. Now, one chapter later, Daniel chapter 3, he now constructs an image that is Watch it now, completely of gold. This is blasphemous. It is Nebuchadnezzar saying, God, I hear you, but this image is completely of gold, which means my kingdom will last forever. He is shaking his fist at the word of God. He ups the ante now by not only having this blasphemous image, But he says, when the band strikes, I want everyone to bow to this image, and whoever doesn't bow is going to be cast in the fiery furnace. Some of you are saying, well, thanks for the history lesson, Brian, but that ain't got nothing to do with how I live. Yeah, my workplace is crazy, but it ain't that crazy. They're not building any, uh, any images of our CEO at our company, and when I get there tomorrow on break, we're going to gather out onto the lawn, the quad, whatever it is, and, you know, after uh, the DJ plays the music, we're going to bow down to it. What does that have to do with me? Oh, we see, friends, that the struggle in Babylon is the struggle of idolatry, and idols can take on many different forms. Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, Ezekiel says it this way, And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, watch it now, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Don't you see it? Idols aren't just on the plain of Dura, they're in our hearts. Tim Keller goes on to write, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel significant and secure. 
There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. Our hearts are idol factories, as the old Puritan writers would say. There is no such thing as an empty altar in our hearts. Right now, we are all worshiping something. For some of you parents, it's, it's your kids. That's why you act a fool at their games. <laughs> going off on coaches and referees, and I've told you this before, let me tell you again, your kid ain't going pro because your kid's got your genes. So I need you to tone it down a notch, okay? Woosah, relax, enjoy. For some of you, your idol is your spouse. Don't ever say to another human being, you're my world. Because what happens when your world dies before you and you're looking at your world in a casket? You better have something deeper you're holding on to. I could go on and on and on. Let me give you two marketplace idols, two images that you're going to walk into work tomorrow, and they are always there. Marketplace idol number one is success. I believe if you're just to narrow it down, I believe every city has its unique idols. That doesn't mean there's not other idols there, but I think the Bay Area, the predominant idol here is success. Now, success doesn't mean you shouldn't want to do a good job. You should want to do a good job. Success doesn't mean you you shouldn't give it your all. You should want to give it your all. But where success becomes becomes an idol is when my identity now drifts from Christ to my performance. It's when who I am is defined by whether or not I make all my sales goals. Where who I am is based on whether or not I get that promotion. Where who I am is predicated on a performance review. Now we've drifted into the realm of idolatry. June 17th, 1972, we know this story. Five men break into the Watergate Hotel. And this begins a chain of events that would devastate the Nixon administration. What were those men doing there ultimately? They were there because of Nixon's success idol, his win at all costs. See, when success is your ultimate idol, you will inevitably compromise your integrity. Because the bottom line for you isn't Jesus, it's not even character, it is win, baby, win. Someone in the Bay Area once said that. Probably one of the most devastating things I've ever seen in my life is right here in the Bay Area. I, I remember when I was first coming out here and, and, and just kind of getting the lay of the land, and this one individual's kind of taking me around, and, and we're driving through Palo Alto. I'll, I'll never forget, and this individual was telling me, um, you know, the average two-parent home in Palo Alto has graduate degrees. And at the same time, I'm noticing we're, we're, we're going down there by the train tracks, and I'm noticing these blue tents with security guards by the train tracks. And I said, now, what is that? 
Explain that to me. Yeah, you got to have security guards here because a lot of individuals commit suicide by throwing themselves in front of the trains. And he told me that some of those individuals happen to be kids. Why? It's devastating on kids to grow up in homes with parents who have success idols. And that's some of you. You have placed a crushing burden and yoke on your kids because you haven't dealt with your success idols. I don't want to throw anybody on the bus, but isn't that the mess we've been reading about in the newspaper this week? The college scandal? Success idol. I love it. And the one daughter, they dug up her YouTube stuff. She said, I don't even care about school. I just want to go party. (laughs) And she gets into USC. Lord have mercy. Parents, let me just throw this out there for free. When your kids do good in school, when they bring home a good report card, Be careful of saying, I'm proud of you, related to their performance. Your kids should hear you say, I'm proud of you, just because. Now, of course, my, my wife will tell you, you know, we have standards. You bring an F into my house. I better not have just thought about your week and you was chilling in front of the TV all week long. Now, that's a, we got a stewardship issue there. But not every kid's supposed to go to some Ivy League school. Another idol we deal with isn't just success. It's the idol of money. So we don't... We don't now choose professions based on a sense of calling. We choose it based on money. A recent study revealed that the two fastest growing professions are the medical industry and the finance industry. Parenthesis, I'm not saying everybody in those industries are in it for the money. Clearly, as Dr. Murray shared, that's not why she's there. But there are many people who are choosing those industries not out of a sense of vocation or call, but out of a sense of money. The same study revealed that the two fastest rates of depression among vocations are, you guessed it, medical industry and finance. Why? Because when I chase money, like any other idol, here's what I understand. Idols always overpromise and always underdeliver. Idols always overpromise and always underdeliver. The CFO of Freddie Mac Mac hanged himself in his basement right after the 2008 global crisis. The CEO of Sheldon Good shot himself in the head. A French money manager who lost $1.4 billion of his client's money slit his wrists and died. One executive overdosed on drugs and then jumped out of a 29th floor office building to his death. The crazy thing about these individuals? Most of them had millions of dollars in their bank account when they committed suicide. See, when money's your idol, you never reach a point where you go, I'm good. That, that just never happens. And so many of us who have money idols, it's got different faces. Some of us, it's a spending, coveting face. 
So, so we get the money, now we got to have the, the possessions, which give us the status. It's an idol. Others of us, it's a hoarding face. This is the problem with the rich landowner. Rich landowner gets a bumper crop in an agrarian society. That's a lot of money coming in. Does he think, I'm going to be generous towards God? No. What does he say? I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to stuff and save and save and save and save and save and save. And that's some of us. Our, our identity isn't found in Christ. It's found in the amount of zeros in our investment or bank accounts. That's why the Bible never condemns money. It condemns the love of money. Because you cannot love God and money at the same time. Don't get it twisted. There will always be idols that we have to deal with. Secondly, we see them standing in Babylon. Let me hustle. They, they get the word, company-wide gala, gathering together. When the band strikes up, everyone's going to bow. I imagine the angst that they're feeling. Maybe they huddle together, have a pregame meeting. They go over to one of their homes. Maybe they pray together. They strategize together. Maybe they say, let us all st- sit together. And when this happens, we're just going to stand while everybody's bowing. They walk out there. The heart rate's elevated. Man, these are very human individuals who understand that the decision they've made could cause them at the most their lives at the least their jobs music plays everyone else is uh, bowing if this was in today's generation it'd be captured on YouTube that thing would go viral they stand and then word gets back to the king I love it take some time to read it for yourself It says that some of the Chaldeans, which are native Babylonians, say to the king, O king, there are certain Jews who do not obey you. I was surprised this week, even reading conservative commentators on this text, even conservative commentators say that statement, there are certain Jews, is laced with racism. Oh, if I had more time to come to your neighborhood, I I would say some of you all are like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys are immigrants. They're new to Babylon. They've gotten the primo jobs. And along the way, they've passed over a lot of natives in the company. And the natives ain't pleased at these young immigrants' upward mobility and them getting passed over by these immigrants so they file a complaint with the king and try to get these bad boys killed that's some of you now I know y'all ain't gonna say amen but two or three of us know what it's like to step into a situation in which we're the minority we've gotten the education we've gotten the credentials and not everybody is pleased Let me move on. And so Nebuchadnezzar gets the word, calls him back in for a private meeting. He says, look, guys, I'm going to give you another chance. I like you. I'm going to give you another chance. Band's going to strike up. You got another chance to bow. By the way, that's how idols always work. Idols are never one and done. They always keep coming back around. They always tempt you. And then Nebuchadnezzar makes a mistake. He says, if you don't bow, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? Wow. These individuals once again decide not to bow. They stand. 
How do we stand in Babylon? There's a whole lot I could give you, but let me just give you one thing. I think you stand in Babylon by never standing in isolation, but by standing in community. You need people around you who hold your values for Jesus, who you can turn to when times get tough, and that these people will stand with you. Put this image on the scene from the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. I'm not here to politicize this. I'm not here to say that what they're doing is right or wrong. Don't hear that. But at minimum, you have to understand that's courageous. You might not agree with their convictions. I'm not here to comment on that. But please notice that they are standing on the podium, but they're not standing in isolation. They're standing together. Who stands with you on your job? Who, who, who do you talk to when tempted to compromise? When, when things get a little tough and a little tight, who do you turn to? I had a good friend of mine who played Major League Baseball for, for many years, strong, devoted follower of Jesus. If you know anything about uh, Major League Baseball, I think all athletes in all professional sports uh, are tempted in certain ways, but especially Major League Baseball. Uh, it, it's, it's 81 games on the road away from home. I said, how did you do it as a God-fearing man? He says, look, I wasn't perfect, but we would always have other Christians on the team. And our agreement was always when we were on the road and we went out, we never went out alone. We went out together. Who's your Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Who stands with you? Who do you talk to about the pressures of life in general, but especially in the marketplace? Let's go home on this one. Finally, we see the sovereignty of God over Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar gets ticked off. <laughs> His face changes and he orders the furnace heated seven times hotter. Now, scholars tell us, don't get caught up in the number seven, literally. Seven is the number of completion. It's a figurative number. So because it's the number of completion, here's what he's saying. Heat this bad boy up as hot as it will go. Now, this is crazy. Nebuchadnezzar, if you want to make them suffer, lower the temperature. Slow cook rotisserie these bad boys. You know what I'm saying? Don't turn it up, turn it down. But Nebuchadnezzar has it heated up as high as it'll go. And then the text says, man, they, they go in there with their cloaks on. All right, you're from California. That would be a, like a heavy thing that you, well, no, you wear it in 50-degree weather. But <laughs> some of y'all have crazy bosses. Nebuchadnezzar is crazy. And then watch it. The text says, that the men who threw them in died. I don't know who this word is for, but some of y'all got some folk on your job who try to throw you in the fire. Some of y'all got some haters on your job. Please understand me. This text shows us that God is more than able to handle your haters. God's more than able to handle your, your haters. Then watch it. They get thrown into the fire 
right on the heels of Nebuchadnezzar saying, and what God is there who can deliver you from my hands? Now, this is not in the text. It's in the white spaces. But I just imagine God is peering over the balcony of heaven and he's watching this whole scene and he's you know, moved by these three men standing for him. And maybe he calls Gabriel and says, Gabriel, why don't you go down there and take care of that? And then Nebuchadnezzar, right as Gabriel's on his way, he says, and what God is there? God says, hold up, Gabriel. Nah, he done thrown my name into this. Go back down, have a seat next to Michael. I'm stepping into this bad boy myself because Nebuchadnezzar says, he says, wait a minute, didn't we throw in three? I see four, and the fourth is an appearance as one of the gods. Scholars tell us this is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not on the unemployment line until the New Testament. He was at work, and Jesus, watch it now, steps into the fire with them. That's somebody's word today. Somebody today, you feel as if you're in the fire. You feel as if life has got you hemmed in. You feel as if this trial is so intense. You need to understand you don't need for the trial to end to experience Jesus. Jesus can be with you right in the middle of the trial. This is God, this is God talking through the prophet Isaiah of when the nation of Israel will be in Babylon. He says these words, look at them with me. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Oh boy, I need a Hammond B3 organ right now. I'd be taking some laps right now. You can be in the fire, friends, and experience the presence of Jesus Christ. Watch it one more. And the text says that not only is Christ with them, but Nebuchadnezzar says, I see four men loosed and walking about in the fire, which means you ain't got to get out of the trial to have freedom. You can have freedom in the fire. God's with you, child of God, in the fire. God is with you. Just because you're going through something doesn't mean he's mad at you or he's forgotten about you or he's turned his back on you. He is with you. And you can be free. And you can be free. Come on, Samaj, we're done. We're done. Come on. You can be free. Jesus Christ specializes in being with us. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Dr. Murray and her just saying, individuals, she didn't use this word, who are going through the fire of surgery and how God's called her to be with them and to give comfort. That's a tangible expression of who God is. God shows up in hospitals God shows up in unemployment lines. God shows up in stressful situations. God is with you. That God is not on the History Channel. Do you believe that? 
You can be loosed and walking about. You can be loosed and walking about. Why? Because in the New Testament, the ultimate Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was Jesus. He refused to bow to the idols of this world. And Satan threw him on a cross, threw him in a borrowed tomb. And what happens? God steps in and God raised a dead Jesus. Because Jesus stood up from that grave with all power in his hands. You and I have that same gospel. In fact, Ephesians 1 says the same power that raised Jesus from the grave we have. See, I want to correct your theology. When we talk about being victors, it doesn't mean we won't get the trial. Get that out of your mind. Nor does it mean... See, this ain't stuff you'll hear from prosperity teachers. Nor does it mean that when we're victors, it'll end up the way we want it. But what it does mean is we know the presence of Christ and we know the freedom of God while in it. So Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego said, look, I don't don't care how this bad boy ends up. Because I'm on God's side, I've already got the victory. I've already got the victory. It's like they came to Paul one day and said, Paul, we're going to kill you. That's okay. To die is gain. Paul, we ain't going to kill you. We're going to let you live then. That's okay. To live is Christ. Well, Paul, we ain't going to kill you or let you live. We're going to make you suffer. That's okay. That's more glory for him. Whatever comes my way, it's all him. It's all him. Father, we're, we're out of here. Father, we, we bless you right now in the name of Jesus. You're calling us to stand in Babylon. You're calling us not to bow to the idols of this world. You're calling us, Lord God, to be people who walk into the marketplace and who make a difference for you no matter what comes our way. So thank you for the victory that is ours in the name of Jesus. Thank you for the victory that is ours in the name of Jesus.